Our scripture reading for tonight comes from 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 15. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his, this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the, his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. The word of the Lord. Sort of a steamy story for a steamy night. They made a movie of this story in the 50s starring Gregory Peck. And in the, mo in, the, in the poster for the movie, he has his shirt off and his muscles are all rippling. And next to him, there's this dramatic lettering that says, The story of the all-conquering Lion of Judah and the woman for whom he broke God's own commandment. And along the bottom, there's a picture of Susan Hayward, laying with her head back and her arms open, scantily clad, a transparent veil draped over her through which you can just see the outline of her thigh, like some lingerie ad, Gregory Peck towering over her muscly. A lot of the Bible, people find a little bland. This story has been arousing people for centuries. David succumbs to desire. In my day, the youth ministers really picked up on this story, like it was some cautionary tale for adolescents about lust and modesty. 
When the Gregory Peck movie Bathsheba comes across, like women often did in the 50s, lovesick, admiring, she breathes these breathy lines like, David, did you really kill Goliath? Was he as big as they say? David is an all-conquering lion of Judah, but like most mythic heroes, there must be some fatal flaw, kryptonite, Achilles' heel. But the lion's flaw is his unchecked lust for Bathsheba, his one true love. Which really, in terms of like audience appeal, isn't that much of an undesirable trait. A powerful man who is passionate, libidinous, sexy. A woman who is beautiful, bathing naked on her rooftop. Male commentators have gone on and on for centuries, seriously, seriously centuries, debating, asking, wondering, imagining, did she actually seduce David? Did she perform somehow on the rooftop at her bath? Or was she an innocent, angelic victim of lust? I can just imagine them imagining. There are jillions of paintings of Bathsheba at her bath, spread over hundreds of years, composed seductively for the male gaze, it seems to me. The forbidden object of desire forever desired. Never mind that this sort of romantic fetishizing of the forbidden locks us into some stunted fantasy of repressed and misogynist and perpetually adolescent males. It isn't a very good reading of the text. Our forefathers and grandmothers, the patriarchy Puritans, seem to focus inordinately on sins of sexual immorality. But this text is about the atrocities the obscenities of power. And maybe somehow we learn to be less offended by power. Maybe because the public mind has become so regimented by the powers it can't even effectively question them. Or because somewhere, in spite of our questions, we believe that it is in power that our security lies. Sex is the scandal that will ruin a president. But we're so used to abuses of power that the mainstream media hardly makes a peep. The people want a king. They think it'll bring them security. They want a big, strong leader to look up to. God says, you want a king? You want an alpha male to follow? You want to put in place a power structure that will govern and mold your hopes and desires. You want the narrative of the power man to be what defines your world. You want that to be what structures reality. You want that? Then you reject me, and you reject my ways. I like God. The first character you meet in the book of Samuel, before the whole narrative of the king starts, is a woman. Hannah. She has no children and she weeps. And her, and her husband is like, am I not enough for you? And she says, no. And she prays for the grace of God to fill her and she gets pregnant. 
and her son Samuel will be the prophet of God. And she is so grateful for God filling her womb that she sings this song, which is preserved at length and in detail in the opening chapter of the Book of Kings. And it's a lot like the song of Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus. It's all about this revolutionary God who subverts the power, who is concerned with the poor and the hungry and the feeble, who brings down the proud and the mighty and the alpha. It is so not about power and glory. It is about a God who raises up the weak and the broken from the dust. So even though the royal narratives totally take over this book and totally take over the world, you can't help hearing this little tune of Hannah's being whistled in the background of this whole book, weaving through the palace, hairline fractures spreading through the edifice. When the people start clamoring for a king, God says, Samuel, tell them again why they don't want a king. And Samuel says, the king will take will send you and your children out to fight the war for him. The king will take the best of what you have and use it for himself. The empire will diminish your life. It'll limit your imagination to serve its purposes. And you will be like slaves to the power of the power. Prophetic, definitely. The story about David and Bathsheba shows how everything that Samuel predicted about a king comes true. It isn't really all that much about sex, actually. David's fatal flaw isn't some animal nature that he can't control. It's a story of the unfolding of the way of power. And it doesn't actually seem very sexy. It seems a little bit more ugly and pathetic. The story starts out by saying... In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent all Israel to fight the battle, and he stayed home in Jerusalem. Aha! Precisely what Samuel said the king would do. David stayed at home while others were out there fighting and dying, and the text says, he arose from his bed late in the evening. Imagine that. What does a king do laying in bed all day? Sleep off a hangover, maybe? We know David had lots of wives and lots of concubines. Maybe he's in bed with half of them already, all those hours in bed. I don't know. But he gets up as the sun is setting. He wipes the crust off his mouth, sees a beautiful woman on the neighboring roof, and he says, bring her to me. That doesn't seem sexy. It seems a little bit gross. It isn't a story about the love of David's life, some significant, real entanglement with a woman. It's more like some careless act without romance, without consequence to him, except that Bathsheba ends up getting pregnant. And the result of that, it's like the anti-Hannah song. The sex all happens in a fraction of a sentence. But the bulk of the story is about how the power structure grinds the faces of the poor into the dirt, how it treats their lives like pieces of paper you can crumple up and throw in the trash. It's about the lengths a man with power will go to cover up something that might bring him some bad publicity. The culmination of the wrongdoing isn't some sexy passion 
It culminates in the number of people's lives that David carelessly discards. So David calls Bathsheba's husband home, Uriah, um, to try to get him to sleep with his wife so that people will think that the baby is Uriah's, not David's. The king will lie in bed all day while the people fight the battle, but Uriah says, very ethically, my fellow men are suffering and working hard, and I should eat and drink and lay with my wife? No way. It's a very meaningful juxtaposition. The man with power, the man without. But then when his first attempt at a cover-up doesn't work, David gets Uriah drunk to hopefully loosen up those ethical boundaries. But still it doesn't work. So then David writes a letter to have Uriah killed. And this is kind of creepy. He sends the letter with Uriah to give to his commander. This letter that is his own death sentences. It's very chilling. David writes, put this man in the forefront of the hardest battle and then draw back from him so he'll be struck down and die. And so the commander does what David asks. And Uriah does die, but it's not only Uriah that dies. David decides on this strategy that will actually get a lot of other men killed as well, soldiers with lives and wives and children, to preserve his place of power and prestige. This is not the only time in history that this sort of thing has happened. This is the narrative of kings. It's the history of power in the Western world. You want the security of a power structure? Well, we have it. And it seems like it's all violence and destruction to the people and the planet and the faces of the poor ground into the dirt and the kings in their private jets behind their security walls and the superstars with their entourages and climate-controlled limos and plans to evacuate if things get rough. David carries out all these political necessities without passion or without remorse. He says to the commander, don't let the matter trouble you, for the sword devours one and then another. It's really not David's libido that is the problem. Maybe that's what men in power wish was the problem. They're just too virile and too passionate to be contained. Maybe that's what the men in power who have read this text for 2,000 years have wished was the problem but I'm pretty sure it's the power that was the problem. The man sacrifices other people's lives for his own. And you know, it's, it's crazy that anyone goes along with this. Watching leaders, heroes, rock stars up on stage, all misty-eyed, wearing their buttons or t-shirts, herded and cordoned off, People clapping and cheering at the superstars as they walk the red carpet and all the little people are lined up behind the rope, trying desperately to shake their hands, as if there's nothing shameful in this, in giving our lives to power. As if the apex of sin has more to do with personal morality. And worshiping power is just fun. We need a very deep 
in a very lively and a very careful critique of power. But we just love to have a king. Sometimes people say that in this story we see that David is so human. But it seems to be more of a story how power has made David less human, less alive, unfeeling, unseen, uncaring. Happy that the publicity crisis is over, David tells the commander who carried out the orders, don't let it trouble you. The text says, but it troubled the Lord. And you can hear that little whistle, Hannah's song, starting to come up strong in the background. So God sends Nathan, a prophet, to the king, and Nathan tells a story. There were two men. One was rich and powerful, and one was poor. The rich man had everything, clothes and caviar and cars and herds, herds, fields of sheep. The poor man had one little ewe lamb. A ewe lamb was a lamb that lived in the person's house like a pet. And the poor man brought this little lamb up like one of his children. He fed it from his table. He let it drink from his cup. He slept in bed with it at night. This little lamb was about all he had that was precious to him. But so the rich man one day has this traveler stop by his house, and for some reason he doesn't want to kill his own sheep. So he takes the poor man's little ewe lamb and kills it and feeds it to the traveler for dinner. That's a very sick little story. And David, when he hears it, is enraged by it. He's like, that's just horrible. That's a horrible story. The rich man should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. And David recognizes some trace of humanity still clinging barely to him, that he is the man. I managed to read this text most of the week just sort of infuriated by power and the patriarchy. I'm not the man, obviously. But eventually, of course, I had to realize, is, realize I am not the poor guy with only one sheep either. I have two cars. I have a great education. I have a lot of food. I have a thousand books. I'm American. David hears this story and he says, that power lover should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Ugh, that's hard to hear. We are, I am, mired in the power system. It's what we eat and drink and breathe, and we need to be given something else to ingest. Probably the most wild thing about this whole story is that after Nathan has shown David precisely how he is the man, and we know it's been destructive and violent and an awful thing for him to be the man. But Nathan says, God does not condemn you. It certainly seems like God should condemn him. 
I keep thinking that God should. God must. I do. But maybe God knows what God's doing. Maybe it's the mercy that we need to taste. Maybe that's the food that will bring us to life, make us more and more human. Like maybe condemnation just doesn't work. You can't subvert power with power or something. And maybe that's it. Maybe mercy is the opposite of power somehow. God's love subverts the system. Maybe God has known from the foundation of the world that we are the man, we love power. And God keeps coming after us anyway, coming after us over and over, putting mercy in our mouths, never hoping to fail, that we will someday embrace it.